recording, Howard and I, and a, a third a third off-camera guest. But today, with Mr. Howard Bloom, we are talking about his book, The Muhammad Code. And we've gone through several of your books before. I always love talking to you. As I've said before, you're the moonwalking Stephen Hawking. You're fucking brilliant. You are my brother from a Jewish mother. And you, <laughs> I think, well, you're some, regardless, we'll get into that. But... And we have to do this every time because it's, you know, it's kind of like it's kind of like walking up to someone and getting them to say their catchphrase. And they probably want to they probably want to blow their brains out because they've said it's, you know, Steve Urkel. It's like you see him on the street and you're like, say the thing. But I have to have you introduce yourself and tell everybody a little about yourself because because your resume is so insane. I can't not do it because I still get a kick out of it. Mr. Howard Bloom, please introduce yourself and tell everyone just exactly who the fuck you are. Sorry, right, if I can remember it all at once. Okay. <laughs> now, Britain's Channel 4 TV says I'm the Einstein, Newton, Darwin, and Freud of the 21st century, which I should never repeat to a soul because coming for me, it sounds narcissistic and egotistical. Nope, beyond I asked. nope, I asked you to. That's totally obnoxious. But um, I'm the author of seven books. Um, a lot of important things have happened to those books. The first book, The Lucifer Principle, a lot of people called their Bible. The second book, Global Brain, was the subject of a um, seminar thrown by the Office of the Secretary of Defense with people from IBM, DARPA, MIT, um, and uh, what did I miss? Oh, the Energy Department and the State Department. Okay, then uh, my third book was The Genius of the Beast, A Radical Revision of Capitalism, and the uh, sheikh who runs Dubai and made it what it is today, he's also the Prime Minister of the United Arab Emirates, um, named a racehorse after that book, um, the, um, the co-founder of the Arab Business and Economic, Economic Forum, went in front of a meeting of Arab businessmen from all over the place and said, there's a book I particularly resonate with, um, and it, it contains the future of Dubai and proceeded to read uh, sentences from The Genius of the Beast. And the 11th president of India, Dr. A.P.J. Kalam, who is a culture hero in South Asia, um, called that book a visionary creation. Um, then there's How I Accidentally Started in the 60s, with, which Timothy Leary said was a monumental masterpiece of American literature, um, and, uh, and The Muhammad Code. And I'm probably leaving a book out somewhere. Oh, and The God Problem. How a Godless Cosmos Creates, which I know is a very important foundational book in science, but it's sold well, but it hasn't been discovered in the scientific community yet. Um, the Genius of the Beast, which is 10, 11 years old, um, that book is just being discovered in the scientific community in the last three weeks, judging from the, a, a tremendous number of hits that it's getting on ResearchGate, which is uh, an outlet for uh, academics. And so, um, and I appear on 545 radio stations every Wednesday night at 106 in the morning, um, giving a, a commentary on whatever current event my host assigns me that day. So I think that's, oh, well, yes. And once upon a time, I, I went into a field I knew absolutely nothing about, um, popular culture, and I founded the biggest PR firm in the music industry, and I worked with Michael Jackson, Prince, Bob Marley, Bette Midler, ACDC, Aerosmith, Kiss, Queen, Run, DMC, Billy Joel, Billy Idol, Paul Simon, Peter Gabriel, David Byrne, um, people like that. Uh, Shaka Khan, Joan Jett, little people like that. Just a little couple. And you've been on Joe Rogan. And, but, I've been on Joe Rogan, right. So for anyone that would ever say you're being a narcissist for repeating all these things, you everyone has proof. You can go back to all of our episodes. I ask them because I love them because to me it is fascinating. And I think, I think you are allowed on a, pa a pat on the back. And if you won't pat it, I will. We haven't gone over genius of the beast yet. So I imagine that's our next book. Uh, the God problem and global brain, probably my two favorites. You did leave out one of your books though. Uh, Einstein, Michael Jackson and me. Oh yes. The new book is Einstein, Michael Jackson and me is search for soul and power pits of rock and roll, which in some ways is my most important book. But frankly, in some way, each of the books, is my most important book. They're all very different facets of the same topic. And the topic that I've been chasing down since I was 12 years old um, is group behavior. It's mass behavior. It's mass passions. And it's mass behavior from the mass behavior of quarks to the mass behavior of human beings. It goes all the way from cosmology and theoretical physics 
uh, on up to today. And one other little detail I didn't throw in, I've been published in scholarly journals or given lectures at scholarly conferences in 12 different scientific fields from quantum physics and cosmology all the way on up to evolutionary biology, evolutionary psychology, information science, and aerospace. And you've and you're creating a new field, correct? Is it omnology? Yeah. And the Howard um, Bloom Institute, HBI, which will be, I guess, we'll do genes to the beasts next, and then we're going to do HBI. But those are all the things. About, so I love all of your books. We've gotten. I first found you through how I accidentally started the '60s, and you know, like any any good any good trap, you only need to touch one of the tentacles, and it pulls you in, and you discover all the other readings. My uh, battling back and forth between my two favorites are the God problem and uh, global brain. God problem to me kind of explains why anything is and how fantastic that is. And if you get through it and you'll understand what I'm saying, I kind of think global brain is the answer to God problem. But we've discussed that in another podcast. And because I only get you for a limited number of a limited amount of time and not, you know, I don't get to put you on my shoulder and have you as a ventriloquist and talk to you forever. Let's get into the Muhammad Code, which I'll put in the description. It's available on Kindle. Go grab it. So, and it's, you can't use a blanket statement, but at the same time you can. So if I have to sum it up in one sentence, it's Islam is a radical death cult. Yes. Um, not all Islam. No, sure. There are people in Islam who only know the peaceful sure. sayings of Muhammad. And sure. they think that that's all there is to Muhammad and Muslim. Islam, and bless their souls um, for interpreting their religion that way, just as we no longer interpret a religion like Christianity, which killed people all, well, it was hugely bloody um, at one point. We no longer give the military interpretation. Um, not that Christ ever said anything sure. about being military. Um, he did not. That was a later interpretation that uh, Constantine, when he adopted Christianity as the official religion of the entire Roman Empire in 322 AD, that was, uh, he was in the middle of a battle when he did that. So he was interpreting one of the most peaceful men who ever existed on earth um, as uh, an instigation to war. That's unlikely, but Islam is very different. First of all, if you want to understand mass human behavior, you have to understand Islam. Because Islam is one of the most astonishing phenomena in the history of the universe, so far as we know the universe. Um, why? Because Muhammad was, he had a flea from his own hometown. He was afraid that uh, the townies wanted to kill him um, because they didn't like the way that his, uh, his preachings were upsetting business. Um, so he fled to a tiny Jewish town called Medina, and he built a community there and eventually did horrible things to the Jews of Medina who'd been his hosts um, and started Islam on the path of becoming a military religion. In one interpretation of Islam, Islam is about goodness and honesty and justice and things of that sort. In the interpretation that follows from Muhammad's history in the town of Medina, Islam is, you can only be a good Muslim if you kill unbelievers, period. Excuse me. Now, in Islam, just as in Christianity, there's a heaven and a hell. And um, the, your time on earth is short. And the only thing it counts for is proving whether you belong in heaven or hell. And there's one instant way to, to get an express ticket to heaven. And that's by killing unbelievers. No other religion in the world that I'm aware of is based on murder. And uh, Muhammad's Islam from Medina, from his Mecca period, the people who believe in a peaceful interpretation of Islam focus on what Muhammad said when he was back home in Mecca. The people who want the violent interpretation focus on what he said after he was in Medina and started killing people um, on behalf of Islam. So Islam... Within 100 years of Muhammad's death, well, first of all, Muhammad conquered something like 331 square miles of territory a day for 10 years straight. Jesus Christ. And conquest comes at the price of blood. And Muhammad said specifically, um, you dare not take prisoners, you dare not negotiate with the enemy until you have made great slaughter in the land. 
until you have killed so many people that those few remaining will cling to your ankles and beg and promise you anything if you will just allow them to continue to live. Um, and that philosophy worked. So within 100 years of Muhammad's death, um, Islam had pieced together the biggest empire the world had ever seen. Um, 11 times the size of the conquests of Alexander the Great, five times the size of the Roman Empire, and seven times the size of the United States. It is the biggest imperial conquest in the history of humanity. And um, there is a, a researcher at Harvard, a historian named Carolyn Elkine, who bills herself as the, leading, the world's leading expert on imperialism. And she says no imperialistic movement has ever been able to hold on to the hearts and minds of the people it conquered. Apparently, she doesn't know the history of the biggest empire in the, his, in the history of the earth. And that's Islam. Because um, the empire of Islam has fragmented um, since World War I. But the fact is, if you ask somebody in Aceh, Indonesia, um, what his or her religion is, it's Islam. If you ask somebody uh, 7,000 miles away in Algeria um, what his or her religion is, it's Islam. Um, if you ask the people in the Xinjiang province of China what their religion is, it's Islam. In other words, Islam has won the hearts and minds of the people it conquered. How? How in the world did it do that? It did it through this um, through terror. It did it by killing enough people that you terrorize the rest of the inhabitants and they go into what's called learned helplessness mm -hmm. in psychology or the Stockholm syndrome, mm -hmm. as it's sometimes been called, where people are just willing to do absolutely anything to merely stay alive. So that's why Islam is important. If we don't understand Islam, we don't understand mass human behavior. And when I first was writing the book, it seemed like it was some side trip. As if it wasn't part of the body of my work. Yeah. Uh, but my first book is The Lucifer Principle, the scientific expedition into the forces of history. Um, the Muhammad Code is a scientific expedition into the forces of history. And again, if you're at all interested in mass human behavior, if you've ever critiqued the United States or European imperialism, you better damn well know the context or you're talking off your hat. Um, and the context is Islam. And the European imperialism has been around since approximately 1500. Um, that's uh, 500 years. Um, the Islamic empire has been around for 1400 years, three times as long. Um, the Western system invented something called an anti-imperialist movement. It invented that in the 1890s. And eventually the anti-imperialist movement was successful. Well, frankly, this is the only civilization, Western civilization, that's ever invented an anti-imperialist movement. If you go to Islam, there is no such thing. The rule still is, get off your fucking duff, stop watching football, go out and kill unbelievers. Until you've done that, you cannot guarantee that you will go to heaven and be with God in his palaces and have your 79 virgins. That 79 virgins is not a myth. Um, it's for real. Um, in, in Islam, in Muhammad's preachings. Um, and so this is, yes, it's a death cult. Um, the, the, the militant version of Islam is a death cult. Most Muslims, I can't say most Muslims, it seems that the Muslim community worldwide, which claims to be at 1.8 billion people, is split probably fairly evenly. Probably 40% liberal Islam, if we want to call it that, reformed Islam, and 60% death cult yeah. Islam. Yeah, and you'll either go to heaven in the jeweled palace with with your virgins, with their was their, their translucent skin and their their breasts that don't sag, and or you will go to hell where you'll be put on a spit and roasted over fire until your epidermis boils off, and then God will give you a new sheath of skin so that you may experience that pain over and over again for all of eternity with no reprieve. So. You are, you well, are, this book down, Tommy. I don't have on guests and not, Hey, I got in a medical school. This OCD memorization comes into handy. It's what I wanted to say is at first, when you start listening to it, and I would say not a complete deviation from your body of work, you are a Jewish guy as well as you should give a shit. But yeah, no, when you look at everything you've done, the Muhammad code does at first, it appears to be 
just kind of this outlier. Like, what is what is this thing, right? But as you go into it more and more, I would say that it's actually, it's actually, it, it almost. I would say it's like a real world example of these sort of grandiose ideas and theorems and patterns that you talk about so eloquently in both global brain and the God problem. God problem being that, you know, we have these two quirks, right? The guy sitting at the beginning of the universe and there's nothing and there's a thing and there's a thing and put them together and what will it make? And it's like, what the hell? It's like if I put together two pennies and instead of having two cents, I get a ham sandwich. It makes no (laughs) sense, right? And you go into all these beautiful examples about that in the God problem. And then, uh, and then with global brain, we talk about these sort of these mechanized actions of the whole that no one person or, or, or subset of that whole can understand all the birds moving together, the bees moving from here to here, even as countries, right? Or it looks like an amoeba moving out and it, you know, to, to what the quote use it again and again, use it in Muhammad quote as well. The, whatever, whatever the Christ quote is, you know, to he who hath not, shall be taken. Oh, to he who hath it shall be given from he who hath not. Even what he has shall be taken away. Yes. So we have these things of when you zoom out all the way. So let's look at that. How does this seemingly nonsensical shit happen? Two pennies make a ham sandwich, the quarks and all that good stuff. And then global brain. How does this, you know, unconsciously we give our resources to that which works. What we hear about the United States, right? Our own self-criticism is we're always looking at what? Two, two things. Quarterly profits and every four years an election. And we all fear China. Because China looks decades ahead. Well, listening to your book is when I start to realize that this is not this is not an anomaly in your body of work. This is China zoomed out even more. This is eons. This is this is a hundred year marathon. This is millennia. You do whatever it takes, and then to pull it into global brain or uh, to God problem is you have these things that don't make sense yet they create something. We look at China and it kind of makes sense, right? You're like booming economy. No, you know, they don't really give a shit about people, low slave wages, Belt and Road Initiative, the, the new Silk Road. Yeah, it kind of, on a logical sense, it kind of makes sense. You go, well, of course they would grow. But then you look at Islam, just nothing but just abject terror, raping of children, just slaughtering, you know, you know pull their heads off, put them on stakes, barbecue them. Yet here they are. 1400 years or you know thousands of years still just trucking forward so to me it is very much like the god problem here's this thing that logically makes no sense yet here it is outlasting every other empire it doesn't make sense yet here it is so i would say it's not at all an anomaly or or an outlier of your body of work rather it's the most real world example i can think of yet of what what is this global brain? No one of them is thinking, you know, or they are. It's it's just steadfast slaughter. Yeah, get off your ass. It doesn't matter whether Christopher Columbus is sailing or whether you're watching the Super Bowl or the moon landing. It doesn't matter what's going on. If you're not killing infidels, you're going to end up on that spit next to them and you're not going to have your virgins in the in the palace of God. So it's this counterintuitive, rabid death cult. Yet here it is outlasting the British Empire, the Roman Empire, Alexander the Great. I mean, America's what? We're coming up on 250 years. Right. Nothing compared. And we all base it on human rights and the, you know, the amendments and the Bill of Rights and landing on the moon. But it's like, and here's this thing where it's like slaughter your enemies like dogs and rape their children. And it's going on forever. So I don't know where I'm going with this now, but I don't um, think it's an anomaly at all. No, there's a holy trinity in the Lucifer principle mm-hmm. um, of the forces of history, and it's superorganisms. In other words, a uh, hundred trillion cells work together on a daily basis, and to do something, and no individual cell knows what it is that they are doing in toto. Yeah, but you know it because what those hundred trillion cells produce is Tommy Kerrigan. Yeah, what my hundred trillion cells produce by working together, and none of them know what's going on really is me. Um, and in the same way, put 1.2 billion people together in the Muslim world, and they may have no sense of larger whole they're making, but they are making a larger whole that has a personality of its own. And um, But they are aware of being a part of that larger whole, because ever since 627 AD, in 627 AD, Muhammad, who was raiding desert caravans for the most part, um, and was beginning to develop a standing army. 
um, sent letters to the six biggest emperors of his day, saying, this is an invitation to Islam, but unfortunately, if you reject this invitation, I will have to come and slaughter you. Um, And it didn't make any sense. I mean, the biggest empires of the day were the Persian Empire, Empire, which was enormous, and the Byzantine Empire, the old Roman Empire, which had moved its capital from Rome to Byzantium. And they were huge. And the story is that when the Byzantine Empire got this letter, he said, who in the world does this letter come from? And his advisor said, oh, it's from some desert people out in the, uh, you know, raising camels. Um, and you, you don't have to worry anything about them because they're an equivalent with, with fleas. Um, and within 100 years, in fact, less than that, um, Muhammad's followers had toppled the entire Persian Empire and taken over all of its territory. Um, and they had taken significant slices of the old Roman Empire. They did have to be worried about why. Um, Richard Dawkins um, the the uh, zoologist who was famous for his book, The Selfish Gene, um, came up with the idea that there are memes, that there are self-replicating ideas, the same way that your cells make copies of themselves, the DNA inside of your cells makes copies of itself and sends those copies as new cells out into the world um, to prosper or fail, um, that ideas compete. Or what? They compete for this vast soup of consciousness called the human, the collective human mind. And you can see that because in when you put out a, a tweet, most of the time it gets a handful of viewers. Um, but every once in a while, there's a tweet that gets millions of viewers. It goes viral. Exactly. And what are the qualities of a meme, said Richard Dawkins, that allow it to do this viral thing? And one of them is... It's a collection of ideas that will strengthen the idea that say things like, if you believe in me, you're part of the elite. You're part of the chosen. If you don't believe in me, you're part of the damned. Um, And your job in life is to go out and convert other people. This is what the the Mormon church does. You know, when you hit 18 or something like that, you go out for two years of missionary work. Well, that's a very successful way of running a meme. Because it constantly adds new people to the pool. Well, go out and kill people or not just convert them to Islam, make them slaves of Islam, basically. That's an even more successful meme. And it's been around, as we said, for 1,400 years. The, um, the European empire was only around for 500, a little bit less than that. Um, and, and there's no comparison, really. So... Islam is an enemy because it said that it's an enemy. It has said people like Osama bin Laden say that the West is corrupt. By that, he means that they don't follow the Sharia. They don't follow the laws of God as they are laid out in the Quran. Hence, of course, they are corrupt. They're evil. Um, And we must topple that regime of evil and bring the truth to all the world. The Look, God created the earth from a clot of soil, um, a clot of mud. He created humans from a clot of blood. If God created both humans and the earth, surely both humans and the earth belong to God. And there is only one law system that comes directly from God himself through his prophet Muhammad. And that's what we call Sharia law. So if you believe in justice, you are really an idealist. In Islam, and it's your job to go out killing the unbelievers and toppling um, rival societies, toppling royal uh, rival civilizations. It's your job. Otherwise, you are leaving this world as an unjust place because there is only one form of justice, and it is following the laws of Sharia that Muhammad, that God gave to Muhammad, and all other religions, according to Islam, are illegitimate. They were all, there have been 1,200 prophets, and all of them said exactly what's in the Quran. All of them tried to bring God's message to humans. And then humans came along and polluted each message. So the Torah, the uh, Old Testament, um, which was given to the Jews through Moses, supposedly, um, 
Moses gave exactly what's in the Quran to his people. And then they reworked it and reworked it and reworked it until it was lies, not truth anymore. Christianity, God gave the exact message that was in the Quran to Esau, to Jesus. Um, but then generation after generation modified, changed, added, subtracted from what uh, Jesus said and turned uh, Christianity into a giant cesspool of corruption. Only Islam has stayed true to the word of God for 1,400 years. And only Islam can spread the true light of civilization, which is the light of the knowledge of Allah and his laws. So there's a document which you can find online. It comes from a major, a bunch of Arab governments got together and put this thing together, claiming that the greatest the greatest proponent of human rights is in Islam. But you only have to go to the first page after the title and discover that according to Islam, there is no such thing as human rights. According to this group that is trying to appeal to the West, there's no such thing as human rights. There are only the human obligations, the human duties imposed on you by the Quran and its current interpreters. And people like um, ISIS... When they come along and do horrible things, crucifying people in the streets, beheading people in the streets, they are doing exactly what Muhammad told them to do. This is not a corruption of Islam. These people, the the ISIS people, the um, militants, would argue that the liberal interpretation of Islam is a corruption. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's... (laughs) They are doing what they are supposed to be doing, and anyone who thinks that this isn't the face of Islam doesn't understand Islam. They are most true to it. You know, uh, if if a nuclear bomb, they, they have a job. It's unfinished business from six twenty seven A.D. Yeah, when Muhammad sent those letters to the emperors, their job is to reclaim the entire earth for Islam. Look, according to Islam, we are all born as Muslims. Why? Because we are born knowing the truth of God. God who created us. And then we are corrupted when we're three years old and four years old and five years old and 12 years old with false ideas, with demonic ideas like Christianity, like secularism, like Darwinism, um, or, or like Buddhism. All of these things are deep, dark corruptions, satanic religions according to Islam, and they're not true religions. And only a true religion, a religion is only true if it recognizes the truth of God and only one prophet got it right, and that's Muhammad. So you have to recognize the truths of God as they were given to Muhammad himself. And all that's in the Quran and the Hadith, which is the collected sayings of Muhammad. Um, so if you're an idealist, of course you want to save the world. Of course you want to, uh, to live and die on behalf of something larger than yourself. Of course, so you, if you are an idealist, you want to save the world. And there's only one way to save the world, and that is to make Islam the global religion, to topple the Western system completely and make all of the territories of the West Muslim. So when supposedly Islamophobic Europeans are afraid that the immigration from Muslim lands, especially Syria, where people are fleeing ISIS of all the ironic things, um, is an attempt to take over Europe? Yes, it is. It's yeah. not the evil fantasy. Yeah. There's a guy named Ali Razrui. Ali Razrui is one of the great um, interpreters of Islam. And he was, I don't know, he won, won some sort of equivalent of a Nobel Peace Prize. And he had an 11-part TV series on the history of Africa. And Ali Razrui published an article in an obscure um magazine on population science that said that there are two forms of jihad. One is going out and killing unbelievers. The other is having babies. Yes. And by having babies, he points out that at one point when uh, Muhammad was afraid for the fate of his followers in Mecca, because the Mecca is originally hometown, because the Meccans were really down on what he was preaching, he sent a dozen of them to Africa. And what did they do? They married local women. And what did they do with those women? They had as many children by them as possible. And the result, says Ali Masrui, is that today 
1400 years later, Islam owns half of Africa. And Islam is on its way to owning the other half, as far as only Masri was concerned. He calls this population jihad, the jihad, procreational jihad. And that's what's going on in Europe. Not that any individuals recognize that. I mean, the, the father of the guy who masterminded the killing of 150 um, Frenchmen in Paris um, was, he loved the Western system. He owned a clothing store um, in Belgium. Um, and he just loved the Western system. Little did he realize it, but one of his sons would go back to the primordial form yeah. of Islam, yeah. the true form of Islam. Yes. That Islam, your belief only counts if you kill. And he was horrified. So second generation Muslims, Muslim generations are sleepers. Now this sounds terribly Islamophobic. And the, but the odd thing about um, the Muhammad Code is that no one has called this book Islamophobic. One person has called it the best, not just the best research book ever on Islam, but the best research book ever, research book ever. Um, I forget how many endnotes there are to it, 3,000 something. I can tell you, to interrupt real quick, I can tell you because when I put it on Kindle and I'll have like Siri read it to me, it will say right. what percentage I am through the book. And normally right. with normally when you're doing that on Kindle, like instead of Audible, you'll I find that the percentage that you need to finish of a book is normally around 90%. And then all of a sudden you'll reach the end and you'll go, oh, I don't have 10% of the book left. And right. I was wondering with this one, because I started it and I was like, oh, shit, I'm not going to be able to finish this on time for Howard. And I was going through it and it, I finished the the epilogue and I realized it was only at 52%, which means 48% right. of the text is footnotes and citations. So, yes, possibly the best research book. With all of my book, I have to cut a lot of those citations. Yeah. Um, my publisher won't take um, anything beyond a certain number of citations. It so, is the most researched book I've ever read. And the most important thing is that this book, its primary information comes from primary Muslim sources. It comes from the Quran. It comes from the Hadith. And it comes from the Sunnah. The Sunnah are the original biographies of Mohammed. And there are two of them, uh, Ibn Ishaq and Al-Tabari. Al-Tabari's is 32 volumes long. And this information does not come from Western critics or discussants, people who discuss Islam. It does not come from Western academics. It comes from these core books of Islam itself, the Quran, the Hadith, and especially the Sunnah, Ibn Ishaq and Al-Tabari. So, and the book came about because, first of all, when I was 16 years old, I became aware of the fact that, you know, we have a Jewish state. Um, it's the only democracy in the Middle East. It's the only country in the Middle East that has a continuously growing uh, economy. Um, and that makes major contributions to the technology and the science of the world. And it's Israel. And uh, back then, it was about 4 million people. Today, it's about 9 million people, of whom a, a million are Arabs. But it's surrounded by Islamic states, by Arab states. Now, when Israel was declared officially to exist in 1948, five Islamic states gathered their tanks on the Israeli border, told the Palestinians, as we call them today, but then they didn't have an identity. They were simply subjects of the Turkish Empire. Um, told these people to leave um, to go behind the lines, the Arab lines. Why? Because it would take 24 hours to eradicate Israel and to drive the Jews into the sea. And when those 24 hours were up, you could go back home and plunder and loot and take sex slaves. There were still some women around to your heart's delight. Now, this doesn't sound Islamic, right? No religion could possibly uh, justify going back in, looting people's homes and raping their women and children. Um, no, there is a religion that justifies all these things. Um, chapter 8 of the Quran is about how to divide up the loot after you have plundered and committed genocide on a community. And after you've taken the women and girls, the attractive women and girls, as sex slaves. It gives details on all of this. It's so going back home, 
and leaving home to get behind the Arab lines, then coming back the next day to plunder, loot, and rape, is that's laid out as something that's holy, and of all books, the Quran. Well, they, they, to interrupt for a second, they the way we would describe like rolling hills and rivers and, and farmland as God's bounty, they they call post post-war pillaging and rape. They say that's God's bounty. That's God handing you a trophy going, hey, good job, kid. Right, exactly. And um, so they want the West. Um, they want to topple American civilization. They want to topple Western civilization. And though the immigrants who are showing up in Europe may be profoundly grateful and deeply determined to become part of the Western system so their children don't have to endure the same kind of poverty and, and uh, destruction um, and threats to life that they've endured, their kids are still part of a 1,400-year process, which tells them the only way to get to heaven on an express ticket, the only way to be truly idealistic, the only way to bring justice to the earth is to kill unbelievers. Yeah, yeah. And then there's the story of how I got into writing this book. And so back to when I was 16 years old, I became very aware of the fact that there were all these Arab nations lined up to exterminate Israel. Um, and because I'm Jewish, and these and these people all wanted to exterminate Jews, they were all on Hitler's side. All of the Arab countries were on Hitler's side in World War II. Why? Because they agreed on something. Jews must be utterly exterminated. Well, I don't want to be exterminated, thank you very much. Um, I don't want to encourage any belief system that says I must be exterminated in order to make the world a better place which means I have to be worried about Islam. And um, so I started studying the way I study just about everything, the way I study China, the way I study Russia. Um, I started studying Islam. And then in uh, the 1990s, first of all, at the beginning of the 1990s, my second book, I think it was, Global Brain, predicted the rise of a guy named Osama bin Laden, who nobody had ever heard of at that point, said we would have to worry about him. There's a whole chapter mm-hmm. on that and who he was. Um, so I started to read everything that Osama bin Laden had ever written, every transcript of every interview that he'd ever given to. And it, it began to dawn on me, this was an incredibly erudite man. He knew his history backwards and forwards. The problem was I didn't recognize any of the names he was using. In fact, I couldn't even tell the difference between the people's names he was using and the place names he was using. They were all foreign to me. <laughs> so I went searching for the perceptual key um, to Osama bin Laden's work. And I thrashed about and thrashed about and thrashed about, and I could not find it. And then I ran across the terrible threesome, the Quran, the Hadith, and especially the Sunnah, the stories of Muhammad's life, which are what makes sense out of the Quran, which otherwise is a jumble, and what makes sense out of Hadith, which is also a jumble, big crossword puzzle. And all of a sudden, things fell into place. And so in roughly 2005, I started to write this book, not realizing that this was part of my most essential mission in life. Understand mass behavior from the mass behavior of parks and the mass behavior of human beings. Take a deep dive. Why had I gotten involved in the music industry when I didn't know anything about popular music? Because it was a deep dive, a scientific expedition into the forces of history. The gods inside. Yeah, and I've come to understand the forces of history in ways that I believe, this could be sheer narcissism, but I believe no other scientific colleague of mine has ever had the privilege of experiencing. Hundred percent. So you know when you're working with Michael Jackson and he is at the peak of his fame, and you're getting instead of getting three phone calls a day, you're getting three hundred, which is far more than you can deal with. It changes your entire metabolism. Your metabolism goes into an amphetamine state. Yeah, it's on speed. It's on internal speed. And it changes the way you perceive the world around you. Now, what other scientist has had the privilege of being at the center of an attention storm like that that changes your very biology? None that I know of. No. Except for Richard Dawkins' personal fame, 
which has must have been have been pretty heady for him and continues to be. Aside from that, no, no one's ever explored that territory before. Or there was what Emil Durkheim, one of the founders of modern sociology, called collective effervescence, which is this exuberance, this sense of being in touch with something transcendent, this sense of being caught up and taken out of yourself into something larger than yourself, which is obviously very much a part of what Islam is all about, but is also very much a part of what a rock concert and superstardom mm-hmm. is all about. So I've actually been in these territories. I've actually felt these experiences. And no scientist that I know has ever done that. The high school, the high school dance where you saw yourself out of body. Well, that was, yeah. I mean, I'll tell the story because um, it, it did help me. I mean, from the age of 12, I was looking for the ecstatic experience. God knows why. I have no idea. Um, and then at 14, I heard there was a book called The Varieties of the Religious Experience by a guy named William James. It took me four months to track down a copy of that book because there was no Amazon in those days. Um, And then it felt like William James, who was the founder of American psychology, had laid out these seven different insane experiences on a lab bench and ecstatic experiences um, and said, look, I can't explain these with the science of my time, 1902. You're going to come along 50 or 60 years later. And when you come along, I'm hoping you will have tools that I didn't have with Hitchander Sanders. So I felt that William James had personally left this book to me as a mandate. And what did he talk about? Ecstatic experiences like the experiences of a guy named George Fox, who saw blood pouring from the skies and pouring down the streets of Lynchfield in England. Um, St. Teresa, who lay at night in the darkness and cold of her stone-walled nunnery, um, her tiny little bedchamber, and felt angels coming through the walls with spears and those spears piercing her entrails and filling her with the fire of God and felt herself being blown up to the sky because she could see the entire earth laid out beneath her and feel the utter thrill of being filled with something indescribable, the love of God. And what... um, What William James was able to tell me is that we know these experiences are psychopathologic. They're sick. But in the hands of the right people, sickness, psychopathology, can become the engine of history. So St. Teresa changed the whole, what it meant to be a nun and the whole political structure of being a nun. Um, And George Fox founded a new religion. Quakerism, which is very much alive and kicking today. And I got to, these are the gods inside taking you over. It's the gods inside taking over St. Teresa. Do I believe she was really penetrated by angels? Not at all. This was the gods inside of her coming to the surface. It was the kind of hallucinogenic experience you have when you drop acid um, or you take magic mushroom. The experience comes out of you. Um, The walls around you don't change. You see them as changing because that's inside of you. And that's what was happening with George Fox. And that's what was happening with um, St. Teresa. So my job became to find the gods inside. So here I am looking for the gods inside from the age of 12. Despite the fact that my background is in theoretical physics and microbiology. And in, in high school, my parents were kind enough to send me to a private high school with 60 acres of greenery called the Park School of Buffalo. And I didn't fit in this school. I had never fit in any school. Um, The kids were all kids who didn't like me. But if there's a practical job to be done, um, they don't want to get their hands dirty. They want want status assignments, like being the president of the class, the vice president, where you don't have to do anything. You simply achieve a certain status. Um, You add to your social gravitas, your social magnetism. And there was a committee called the program committee. And the program, we had... An assembly before every day of school. Five days a week, we had a school assembly for 45 minutes. And the pro- head of the program committee programmed two of those five sessions a week and emceed all five of them. So this means in my junior year of high school, all of a sudden I had to go in front of an audience of 350 people every day. And for the first two months, I was scared shitless, you know, stage fright. And then it became as natural to me as breathing. And one day, the juniors 
came to me. I must have been in my senior year. And they said, could you do something for us? We're having a dance. Could you advertise it for us? And they didn't realize the incredible irony of what they were asking. If there were a dance anywhere in Buffalo, New York, I was cordially invited to stay as far away as possible, preferably Cleveland or Albuquerque. Um, I could not dance. Other kids did not want me around at their dances. And here they were at me asking me to advertise this thing. Well, Tommy, I can't dance. I can't do the box step. I can't do the foxtrot. I can't do the waltz. I just can't do anything. Um, but I put a piece of music on the turntable and I went in front of the audience and I started moving to the music. And all of a sudden, but it was a totally unconventional. It wasn't anything you've ever seen before in your life. And all of a sudden, I had an out-of-body experience. I was on the ceiling watching this happen. And I saw the faces of the audience melt. I saw their eyes widen. I saw their pupils widen. I saw the girl who hated me more than anybody else in the school. And her face melted as if it were wax in a candle. Um, and then I saw all of these 350 people's aura, their energy, all come together in a giant collective thing like an amoeba. And I saw that amoeba reach a pseudopod, a tunnel, yeah. out to me. And I saw their energy flowing through me up to somewhere around my brain, being utterly transmogrified through the motions that I was about to make and flooding back down to the audience again through those motions. Um, and, and there I was on the ceiling watching all of this take place when it was all over. The audience did something it had never done before in my time in that high school and would never do again. It came flooding down to the lip of the stage and picked me up on its shoulders and carried me out of the auditorium and carried me all the way up the pathway to the building where we had our classes. So I got to experience this kind of ecstatic experience, this kind of transcendent experience in the realest way possible, in a way very similar to what St. Teresa was going through and what George Fox was going through. And I've been on the track of that, among other things, my whole life. But, you know, I'm an omnologist. An omnologist is a person who, instead of picking one specialized area of knowledge, picks them all. Picks all the areas that he's curious about or she's curious about. And what's the value of an omnologist? A person who spans, in my case, 12 different scientific disciplines. Um, you get to see the big picture that the specialists who are like gophers digging tunnels really deep um, and then not being able to see anything around them but dirt. You get to piece together the big picture. And that's been my mission, apparently, my entire life. And the big picture has been pieced together with a fascination with group behavior, um, right down to the group behavior of quarks, protons, neutrons, photons, electrons, etc. Um, and the social behavior of the first suns to come together, and the first planets, and the first galaxies. And the social behavior between galaxies today, even as you and I are speaking, because galaxies don't like to be alone. Clusters, they super gather clusters. together in herds, right? So even they make a larger emergent property, the way your 100 trillion cells make a Tommy Kerrigan or my 100 trillion cells make a Howard Bloom. So, and, and the history of Islam gives such deep insights into all of this that it's ridiculous. Mohammed apparently had ecstatic states of this kind which when he first had one, he was scared shitless. He hated poets and he hated prophets. Yeah, yeah. And all of a sudden, this craziness happened to him that, that only happens to poets and prophets. And if it turned out he was going to be a poet or a prophet, he wanted to kill himself. <coughs> and actually, it was poets or madmen. That's yeah. right. It was poets or madmen that yeah. he hated. And his wife said, look, I've got a cousin who's a Christian. Maybe he can help you with this problem. So Muhammad went to the, the cousin who was a Christian, and the cousin said, look, there's re this religion, Judaism, and they believe that a Messiah will come someday and save them. And they believe that prophets will come, who will foretell the coming of the Messiah. And it looks to me like you're one of these prophets. Um, so Muhammad picked up on the idea. It made sense out of his insanity. It made a gift from God out of his insanity. Um, and then he tried to bring his religion to the Jews. I mean, Medina, which welcomed him with open arms, was a Jewish town. And the Jews were afraid of, who were not happy about false prophets at all, um, didn't take it. 
And so he got angry at the Jews and became a genocidal anti-Semite. Um, and that genocidal anti-Semitism continues to this very day. So those are the topics, basically. That's why the Mahoma Code is incredibly relevant to the rest of the body of my work. In the same way that I track the social patterns, when cosmic dust first forms, um, and that cosmic dust comes together in wisps, and those wisps, wisps over millions of years come together into huge aggregations. And there are huge aggregations within those aggregations. Some of them become so dense that they catch fire and start burning the, nucle the nuclei of atoms in their heart and sending out screams, the screams of pain we call light, photons. Um, in the same way that I was tracking the coagulation, the social coagulation of dust clouds, of galaxies, of stars, and of the planets around those stars, I needed to track the coagulation of human beings and the most impressive coagulation and the least known of our time is the coagulation we call Islam, the 1,400-year phenomenon we call Islam. And, and well, on a side note, I was gonna, I, I've said it before, I'll say it again. You're hands down the smartest fucking person I have ever had on this podcast. <laughs> but what's, what's crazy is like, it's like that, like, it's, it's kind of like a cringy, but does apply, uh, like, a motivational poster. And it's like, it's like, don't blame the environment, blame how you react. Like, if you put a potato in boiling water, it gets soft. If you put an egg, it turns into a hard-boiled egg. And it's like, the environment can create different things. When you look at these ecstatic experiences of Mother Teresa in Calcutta, right? Or you no, Mother Teresa was in, was in Spain. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm butchering it. I'm, I'm, please excuse, excuse me. I'm full of the Muhammad good. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not up to date on Mother Teresa. This is Saint Teresa. Saint oh, Teresa. Was in Mother Teresa was in Calcutta. Uh, all right. All right. Point is, yeah. Touched by the gods, the pseudopod right. of the amoeba, they go on to create. They go on to either whether it's an outpouring from the heart. Or whether it's now pouring from the mind, look what happened to you. What have you been doing since then? You've been creating these topics, the Howard Bloom Institute. You came on here, and the very reason you're creating the Howard Bloom Institute so that one day you can reach out and touch the mind of a lost individual the same way that the scientific greats reached out and touched you. And I've told you before, and I'll say it now, and I always have to hold back tears when I say it, is you've reached out to me and made me feel less fucking insane, or at the very least made me realize that, hey, it's cool to be insane. These are wonderful things that have come from these the, the divine pseudopods touching you. Creation, love. Uh, foreseeing the future and how can I help other people for the sake of helping them. The difference is, is when Muhammad was touched by this and with the same fervor, but it turned into a black death cult of, of nefarious fire. That's all it is. And it is, how can we destroy? How can we take? How can we rape? How can we pillage? There is nothing but us. And if there is anything going on, if there's any badness in the world, what do they say? Human rights is a creation of corrupt of corruption. Human rights is a creation of corruption. It's it's a bug, not a feature. That's exactly right. what this is. And it's it's it to me. It's just so fascinating when you time and time again, whether it, if it's you or anyone else, when you're touched by these moments, it's how can I go out? How can I bring God to earth? What can I do? Do I set up a hospital wing? Do I start a charity? Do I, you know, do I, whatever, start a, you know, start doing therapy for soldiers coming back from the Middle East with PTSD? Islam is that same fervor, that same Tom Brady coming in on the first day on the Patriots and saying, I'm the best thing this, uh, this organization's ever done. And they're like, who the hell is this? And then he goes on to win seven <laughs> Super Bowls. But right. imagine that love, that, that creation and instead, it's how do I bend the world to my fucking will and eviscerate everyone? Take a girl when she's six, but because I'm a gentleman, I'll wait till she's nine before I fuck her. Right. That's what this is based on. And I know we got to wrap it up in a couple minutes, but to wrap it all around, what happens? And you say it out best. A phobia is an irrational fear. A phobia right. is me, 100 trillion cells, 200 pounds being scared of a spider that's not poisonous that is a phobia it's irrational a phobia is going i don't want to drown in this water bottle well you're not going to what is not a phobia is this 1400 year old death cult it is not a phobia airlines flying into the north face of the south tower 
is not a death cult, or sorry, it's not a phobia. Blowing up a, a 7-7, what, 2002, 2003 in London, the, Bat- right. the Bataclan, Charlie Hebdo, these aren't, these aren't phobia, driving a tr- uh, truck through 86 people in Nice, France. That's not a phobia. It's very, well, not all Muslims. No, you're right, not all Muslims, but true Muslims, that's what it is. And if you think it's going to stop, whether it's there are pyramids or whether the biplane is the hot new topic of talk or whether we're talking about 5G networks and the new Chinese Silk Road, it comes all the way through the present day and it will persist. And if you mention it, you're an Islamophobe. You hate this. But the reality is it's in a direct affront to all that is good from the West. And so I think it's so fucking awesome that you wrote about it because you are you're Howard Bloom. You're the sword-wielding Jew. And you're like, I am going to fucking point these motherfuckers out for what they are. And you did it in a brilliant and incredibly cited way. And as always, Howard, my heart starts to pour out and you know I love you. So <laughs> I got to catch I got to catch my breath. But <sighs> well, let me throw a little footnote. Sure, in. sure. Um, Islam justifies rape. In fact, Islam encourages yeah. It encourages raping unbelievers. Mm-hmm. Why? Because if you can impregnate an unbeliever and she has a child, that child will be born a Muslim. Remember, our children come from the womb knowing the truth of God, which means in their own minds, they are already Muslims. In their own emotions, they are already Muslims. So Ali Mazrui, the demographer, who wrote about procreational jihad, um, Ali Mazrui said about the Sudan, where Arab groups from the north, the Janjaweed, are going south and destroying villages and raping the women, um, he said that the saying in the Sudan was, I am going south to create 10 new Muslims. What does that mean? It means raping the women. Why? Because those women, as involuntary as they, involuntarily as they do it, many of them will give birth to children, and those children will automatically be Muslims. Mm-hmm. There's no so raping the women is a way to advance God's purpose on earth, which is to take the entire earth and subjugate it to the laws of Sharia, which are the only true and just laws humankind has ever had. And, and if you bring it up, you're an Islamophobe. If you bring up birth rates, you're an Islamophobe. There's, sure, there's a lot of racism in the world, but pointing out facts for what they are... It, you bring it up, and, yeah. It's vital to survival. It is, and then that that is what we are: is to be aware of it. The very fact that it's one thing if I'm sitting here on a pot. Well, one, it's illegal to call it violence, but it's one thing if I'm sitting here going, "Hey, go, 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 kill any Isl- Islamic member you see." No, that's bullshit. Islam is against us even talking about this. Just bringing it up. We saw it with Charlie Hebdo. We saw it with that uh, that guy who was shot on the uh, on his bicycle, stabbed, and then had that message pinned to him with a knife. And go yeah. Right. And we just saw it two days ago in Pakistan, where a a foreigner working at a major corporation tried to take down a poster which mentioned Islam on it or Allah. And that was interpreted as an act of blasphemy, an insult against the prophet. And the crowd, a crowd, gathered and killed this guy. That was two or three days ago in Pakistan. Jesus Christ. It's the only way you can fight this darkness that thrives on no one talking about anything. Shut up, put your head down, rape, pillage, and you will go to heaven. The only way to do it is to shed light on it. Yes, exactly. And, I agree. And you do that in an absolutely incredible, well-cited way. And I love it, man. I love it. I, <laughs> I, I told you, I started it and I, I was like, I was like, okay, this isn't like the rest of Howard's books. Like it's the topic at all. It's like this kind of weird aside. I feel like if I do all these podcasts and then once every thousand episodes, I did an episode where I didn't talk and I just like crocheted. People be like, what the right. fuck is this? Right. I started and I was like, all right, weird, loose for a problem, talking about global brain and quarks and up downs and blah, 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 getting into it. But you realize that's exactly what it is. What you did was you finally took all these quote unquote theories, if you wanted to say, or your other books. And then you said, and here it is in person. Here's the reproducible scientific result. What do you want to talk about? You want to talk about when there's pyramids? You want to talk about it when antibiotics were new? You want to talk about it when the iPhone 12 is coming out? It's the same thing and it will be here when we're on Mars. It'll still be here. It will keep going. And I love it. And you showed it. And there are, like a good scientist, 
You showed your you showed your work. You cited your sources, and it's open to peer review, which no one will do because they're either bitches with no backbone who are scared about being canceled or killed, or because they know that they can't, and they know that if they try to approach it, they'll be called an Islamophobe. But you tie them into a pretzel because they don't know what to do when a Jewish guy brings this up, and that is why I love it, Mister Bloom. <laughs> Thanks, Tommy. You're a pleasure. You. You are always a pleasure. Howard, I say this all the time. I love you. I, I'm so happy you're in my life. I cannot wait till we talk again. I will put your books in the description. As always, I'll put the Howard Bloom Institute. I'll put all your websites, your Twitter, all that good stuff in it. I highly, highly, highly recommend you guys going grab his books. As everyone knows, this is a one-man operation. No one's telling me to bring anybody on. So when I want Howard on... That's my own choice. And when I bring him back on and again and again and again and again, that's because I love talking to him and I love his books. I can't fake this motivation and this interest. I highly, highly recommend you guys going to get them. But unlike Islam, I'm not going to give you a death decree. You're free to choose. Whether, <laughs> you're free to choose whether you not you whether you want these. The moonwalking, Stephen Hawking, Howard Bloom. I love you, man. I'll email you and we'll set up the next one. Thanks, Tommy. See you soon. All right, Howard. Take care. God bless everybody. Stay safe.